0: So it's the end of the first day, and I guess since it's the first longer talk, I should check because like Gil, I sometimes get kind of low. Can you hear me in the back? Everybody okay? All right, good. So often at the end of the first day, we congratulate you because you've made it through. I don't think anybody has run screaming out of the hall or... Grabbed their car keys and headed for home. I hope not. And you know, there's a whole group of you who are here for the first time. Some of you for your very first retreat ever. And um, so it's probably had its moments of being a little confusing and wondering what you're supposed to do next, and maybe even a bit scary. And if you're here, you know what? What did John say last night for the 25th retreat? Or whatever, and you've done this a gazillion times, you're probably just really glad that the first day is over because you knew it would be tough. And in either group, of course, there may be a few of you who had a honeymoon today, and you had ease in your body, and you were present, and you were blissful and happy. And the only thing I have to say to you is don't get attached because it will probably change. So tonight um, I wanted to talk about a few things that might be helpful in the coming days, some images and stories that perhaps you can use to support your practice. And so I'm going to talk about an elephant and two bears and a rooster. So we're having, so it sort of sounds like a bedtime story, I think. Um, But try to stay awake, please. So I thought we could begin with a version of the old joke. So you know this joke, most of you probably. So one night, you know, an elephant and two bears and a rooster walked into a bar. And um, they had a few ginger ales and sat around and talked about the dharma probably. And after quite a while, they were ready to go and ready to pay their bill. And... Um, they gave the bartender quite a large bill, way more than uh, the charge was. And then they waited and they waited and nothing happened. And they said, you know, can we have our change? And there was another long pause and the bartender said, change comes from within. (laughs) So there you have it. So all of you who came to this retreat came as we talked last night. You're just getting it. (laughs) So you came because you had a certain amount of inspiration. We talked about that, that brought you here. Or maybe you've you've done it before and, you know, it's been helpful and it's time for another retreat. Or if it's your first time, you know, you've read a book or a magazine article or seen a video or maybe your therapist said, you know, you really ought to do this. And so you signed up and you came. And we come because most of us were seeking some kind of awakening. You know, we really want to wake up. We want to be able to be at ease, uh, as Gil talked about this morning, to rest at ease in the present moment with whatever is going on for us. And we don't want to suffer quite so much as many of us do suffer. So the word sada in Pali uh, is often translated as faith. But that's a little tricky because it has a lot of connotations here in the West that aren't always so useful. And it's actually somewhat better translated, I think, as conviction. And it means precisely to place the heart upon. You're placing your heart upon whatever it is that you have some conviction about. So again, as we mentioned last night, you know, however many days or weeks or months ago, something in your heart moved and you said, I need that retreat, I want that retreat. And you signed up for it and you reached out. So you had, even in that moment, as you said yes to the retreat, that's the stirrings of some sense that there might be something there. So one of the images that the Buddha used to describe this is uh, that you have ventured into the forest and you are hunting for a really big elephant. And you want this elephant because in his time, as is still true in much of Sri Lanka and India, A really large elephant can be very useful in working the land and moving logs and doing all of the wonderful things that elephants can do. And so you've heard, your therapist told you, or the book or the video, that maybe there's something in this forest. Maybe the elephant is there. And so you set out and start making your way through the trees, you know, looking, looking, looking. And after a while, after a lot of looking, you come to a really big footprint. Ah, this looks like it might the elephant might really be there. That's a moment of real inspiration. There might be what you're looking for in this forest. And, you know, so um, you you keep moving and you sort of use that faith. It's sometimes called bright faith when we have that kind of inspiration. You know, we'll keep on looking. Something might be there. You're not a hundred percent sure because, um, you know, as it says in the story, it might be a pygmy elephant with really big feet. And that would not be so useful for your work. Um, So you keep going and um so you are going to keep going, you know. We'll do this again tomorrow night, and by that time it will be the end of the second day, and you will have continued your way through the forest, and you will keep looking for some sense of beginning to find what you're looking for. And, you know, maybe you'll get uh, a moment of clarity or a moment when you're sitting still in the forest or paying attention to the birds or whatever. So you begin to have some other signs that something is there. And in the Buddha story, he says, well, that's when you begin to notice that there's some branches high up that have been broken off. Well, okay, that's good. That's a good sign that an elephant has been through. But it could be a tall, skinny elephant and not one that is so useful for working. But gradually, gradually, you know, just as in our practice, your conviction strengthens, and in the story, the hunter comes to that point, he pulls the bushes apart, and there is this really large elephant. You know, and that's when you know that there's something there. Now, I'd point out that this doesn't mean you've caught the elephant yet. You just know that it's, It's really there. So as we come in and we start with that sense of inspiration, this is a really, really helpful thing. And you can consider yourself to be a kind of hunter as you move through the jungle of the retreat looking for, uh, you could call it, the great elephant of awakening, if you'd like. And as I said, there might be some glimpses as you go along So as I mentioned last night, um, just a few weeks ago in March, I was down at a Benedictine monastery on the Big Sur coast, fabulous place. And um, I was there for just a period of self-retreat and for about 10 days. And all of a sudden, partway into the retreat, I was so happy. Now I was utterly surprised. I had no idea why I was happy. I was just really happy, which is not what usually happens for me on retreats, it was pretty unusual. And so it was like a glimpse, you know, that that there was something there. And while I was there I heard another story. And this is a story from William Faulkner, this is the first bear. Um, and so this is a story about a bear that's in the South because that's what Faulkner wrote about. And this bear has been hunted for years by this particular family. Every year for a couple of weeks in the fall and a couple of weeks in the spring, they go out hunting. And, you know, they are hunting for other things too because that's how they sustain themselves. But there was always this bear. You know, that, and they never saw the bear and they never caught the bear. And so this little boy, Sam, was his name. He's heard about this bear all his life. He's really interested in this bear. And um, you know, over and over, the men and the women would go. The bear isn't caught. And as Sam gets to be a little bigger, then he starts to go with them to you know, and sort of sees this experience of hunting for the bear. And He never sees it either. But then finally once when he is out, he sees this enormous bear print, quite like the elephant print. And it's a huge paw print. Uh, They know this bear once upon a time was caught in a trap so it's missing a couple of toes so he knows this is the right bear. So he starts looking for the bear on his own even. One time he's out and he can tell from the bird calls that there's something around and he knows the bear is there. He knows the bear is probably watching him, but he still doesn't see the bear. So finally, when he's about 12, he, and he has a gun of his own, uh, he goes out, still doesn't find the bear, and his very wise Indian mentor said to him, you know, the problem is the gun. You have to leave the gun behind. So he does. He leaves the gun behind. Pretty amazing, really, when you think about it. A gigantic bear, a little boy. And he goes out without his defenses, really. He has no way of protecting himself. He takes only his compass and his watch. This is exactly what's asked of you as you come to the retreat. You now You are setting aside some of your usual ways of being to be here, right? You're not sleeping in your own bed, right? You know, It's probably not even anywhere near so comfy as your own bed, you know? You're not eating your own food, whatever special kind of food you usually eat. You're not keeping your own schedule, you know? And hardly anyone here knows who you are, you know? It doesn't, matter here who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher or a waitress or a student or a dad or a mom. Any of those things, it just doesn't, it's not part of who it is here. We don't know much about your health and your little special things that you do for your body. Uh, Nor do we know much about any particular vices you might have, You you know, little secret things that... Uh, Each one of us has some love somewhere. So you've come out without your defenses. That's remarkable, really, to let go of our usual way of life and put yourself in this container. And in order for the waking up that you seek to happen, you have to do this. It won't work. It will not, those things will not help you in the process of waking up. They don't. You know, they're useful in the world, but they're not useful in this process that you're in now, and they won't defend you, and you won't see the bear. Pretty simple. So you come to this intensive time of practice, and you have had some clues, probably already today, that you're on the right track. You know, it might have been a moment of hearing the frogs, you know, the frogs, or it might have been when the turkeys did one of their wild turkey cackles, or it might have been watching the turkey vultures overhead, or it may have been a moment of a particular taste of food, and all of a sudden you went, whoa, I never knew a banana could taste like that. You know, and you realize you're really, really here, you know, so like I said, on my retreat, there I was so happy. I was like, "What was this you know i didn't didn't expect it, and I didn't understand it, and all I could do was to allow it to be there. I thought, well, it's kind of nice, you know, be happy for a while, let it bubble up and see where it led, so in our story. So Sam sets out with his without his gun. He has his watch and he has his compass. So he has some sense of time and some sense of orientation to where he is. And he probably thought, you know, I could find my way home if I needed to. But he searches and searches and searches and still no bear. And so at one point he hangs up on a tree, kind of a... Snaggy, interesting looking tree that he thought he could find again. He hangs up the compass and he hangs up the watch. And then he keeps on walking. And after a while he realizes he doesn't have the tree anymore. He doesn't know where his compass is. He doesn't know where his watch is. He certainly doesn't know where he is. He's kind of at this little glade in the woods. So he sits down on the log and he waits. And he waits Where he's waiting, time is of no use. Time is of no use. We are so controlled by time, aren't we? Oh, it's amazing. You know, our our phones tell us what time it is, and our computers tell us what time it is, and you can set a timer to go off or sing songs to you as often as you want, all day long, and we are really, really, really scheduled, most of us. And here, you know, you've set aside your watch. Some of you literally did that this morning when you offered up your phones, you know? And it's interesting. Most spiritual practice centers I've ever been in, different varieties of them, live by bells, you know? And that's what we do here. And that's, when I was at the monastery, that's what they do. And the bell will tell you everything you need to know, everything you need to know for a retreat. You don't need to know much. You get up, you sit, you eat, you walk, you sit, you walk, you eat, you sit, you walk, ultimately you eat again, then you have a Dharma talk, then you go to bed, that's it, nothing else. And the bell will tell you, everything. So you can let go of that sense of being controlled by time and we begin to live in another rhythm. It's really the rhythm of the heart, you know, the rhythm of the forest, the rhythm of the field, and the rhythm of the interior life. And you begin to see when you do that, time is weird. Time is real. It's kind of weird the same way Gil was talking about all the atoms and the stars and the galaxies and we know that time is part of that right so you know that five minutes they can go back by like that right or sometimes t- five minutes it just feels like you cannot possibly sit here for another five minutes on your cushion please 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 ring the bell you know but nobody rings the bell and you look again and it's still got three more minutes ago and then you look again and Except you, of course, don't have your watches, but you know. And it takes a long time. So, and we know when we're here, when you're really, really here in the present moment, there's, there's this sense of vastness and spaciousness, and it's like there isn't any time at all. My husband, who's a scientist, likes to say that time is God's way of keeping everything from happening at once. So it's a pretty interesting place and you can experiment a little. And like, I've, I've played with it sometimes on retreat, like can, can this day be as long as a week? This day is really a whole week long. And then just begin to treat it like, oh look, I have half the week left, wow. And it actually works, at least it worked for me, so you can play with it. And then you're invited to set aside your compass you don't know where you are. You don't know where you are in this moment. I mean, yes, you know, you can tell me. Spirit Rock, Woodacre, California, all of that. But in a very real way, you don't know where you are. And you can't go back. You know, one of the great Indian teachers used to say to his students that they shouldn't start a spiritual practice because once you've begun, you can't go back, you know. And I am sorry to tell you all, you have begun. so you can't go back. And I know in AA, you know they like to say you know that if you get sober and then you go out and drink again, the problem is you might have a belly full of booze, but you have a mind full of AA, and that's different. So whatever you're doing here, you're on this path and you can't really undo it. You can't go back to the person you were before this retreat. And something new is opening and emerging in you. And all you can do is sit on your log, on your cushion or your chair or your bench, and wait and watch and be lost. There's a lovely David Wagoner poem that I read at a lot. I'm not going to read you the whole thing. Um, but he says, Stand still, The trees ahead and the bushes behind you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here and you must treat it as a powerful stranger. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So you are disarmed, you are out of time, and you are willing to be lost. So the boy, little Sam, waited in the gloom of the forest, and suddenly he realized the bear is there. The bear is there, this huge, gigantic bear at the edge of the glade where he's watching And as he watches the bear walks across and partway through across the glade he stops and turns and looks at little Sam and then it proceeds out to the other side and back into the forest. Sam couldn't see with his everyday eyes with his traditional gear. He had to let go in order to see. He had to empty out his normal sense of self, and open to something that is new. This is exactly what we are asked to do in this practice when we come on retreat. And this is what will allow us to have glimpses, just as he had glimpses, um, of insight of what's out there in the forest. So that's one bear and one elephant. So here's the next bear so as the journey goes along because you've got what have we got ahead of us five more full days of retreat so it's a lot of retreat and um it will have its difficult moments you know did my happiness last no the next afternoon i was really really cranky and annoyed and out of shape and you know just didn't like what was happening and it got hard You know? And so that brings me to uh, one of my bear friends that I've had around for a while. This is Mrs. Bear. So this is a, a koan written by Robert Aitken Roshi who was one of the great early Western Zen teachers. And he wrote a whole book of koans using animals instead of people. So Black Bear came to a meeting late and said, I'm feeling frazzled after dealing with my cubs. What if I don't feel compassionate? And Raven, who's the teacher of the Roshi, said, fake it. <laughs> that doesn't seem honest, said Mrs. Bear. And Raven says, it doesn't begin with honesty. So you probably had bear cub mind today, Right? You know, that kind of wiggly, mischievous, running here, running there, doing all of the things that minds do, kind of squirrely and sometimes cranky. And, you know, there's probably a few things I've left out, but that kind of mind. And uh, it seems like it's out of control. You've all had out of control mind today, right? Yes? Anybody who hasn't? You know, so it's, it's like that. And it makes up this mind, sheesh. It makes up the most amazing stories and fantasies. And it has commentary about everything and about everyone and especially about us. And it can just drive us insane. It's really amazing. And every now and then today, maybe your mind took a nap you know, and actually literally did go to sleep. You dozed off on the cushion or maybe in your room. But it probably, given how wiggly it was the rest of the time, didn't feel like it slept long enough, you know. I can remember when my kids were little. They would sometimes have these days when they finally go down for a nap. Oh, yes. And ten minutes later, they'd be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready to go at it again. So the mind is quite like that. And probably you've been having some judgments about your mind. Most of us do. And most of us don't really like what we see. And sometimes we even despair about it. It's really, it's hard. And how can you have compassion on that? You know, why should you have compassion on that? We don't feel any compassion. And we just want it to get straightened out and do what we want it to do. It's upsetting. It's upsetting. So maybe you go to the teacher to ask that question, you know, how do I have compassion on this wiggly mind of mine? It's something we hear a lot, actually, in our interviews. People want to know, how can I hold this with some kindness? And so the teacher says, fake it. I was like, what? You know, fake what? Can I be hearing right? But you know, you began metta practice this afternoon, most of you were probably at the set for loving kindness and that's exactly what we're doing in that practice because the instructions are very very clear you may not feel kind you may not even feel friendly as you do that practice and you're told to do it anyway do it anyway say the phrase may i be peaceful May I be happy? May I have ease of well-being, you know? Or if you're doing it for someone else, sending it out. It's not something we think or we feel. It's something we do. It's a doing, not a feeling. Really, really important to get that. Feeling is extra. It happens sometimes, it's lovely when it happens, but it doesn't always happen. So we create this intention of goodwill. We create the intention of kindness. You know, again, going back to 12-step work, that lovely saying that says, fake it till you make it. You know, so you keep putting it out there, putting it out there. So we could sort of imagine Mrs. Bear going back to her cubs, right? And the cubs haven't changed any. They're still squirrely and full of trouble and and you know not doing what she wants them to do and she starts to become angry again and maybe she's even ready to give them a good swat and then she goes oh yeah this is what the teacher said you know and maybe she just manages to hold herself back just a little bit you know and maybe can suggest possibly with some difficulty well let's go for a walk or let's go fishing or you know, let's have some cookies and some milk. Something that's kind and something that is meeting that squirrely cub with compassion and friendliness. She didn't feel kind. She probably felt the same old irritation that she'd always felt, but she did something different. So you can do the same thing in the coming days when that judgmental, critical mind starts to come up, you know, your mind is wandering off over and over, you are sure you are the worst meditator that ever walked into spirit rock, ever, you know, then you can begin to hold it with some kindness. Or maybe, you know, my favorite scary story that my mind used to do, everybody dies in my scary stories. First, I think, you know, I have this feeling my husband's gone to the hospital tonight and then I think about my daughters, and then I start thinking about some of my friends. By the time I get to the dog and the cat, I'm usually pretty clear that the mind is making up stories. It is so amazing. So when that happens, when your mind does these things, to create the intention of going, oh, poor baboo, you know? Let's come back, let's be here, let's breathe, and do a little kindness and compassion. Or you could even go for a walk, or you could have a cup of tea, you know? Or you could even take a nap, a real nap, and then begin again, come back and start over again. And eventually you will probably feel that kindness and compassion, but quite likely not at the beginning. So that gets us up to the rooster. So we do all this. You know, you go out on this journey, you look, you find clues, you wait, you catch glimpses, you learn to be a little kinder and a little more compassionate. Where's the awakening? Why don't I have it yet, you know? Why doesn't it come? I sat for eight hours and nothing happened. You know, I stayed up all night and nothing happened. You know, I sat a whole retreat without one insight ever, you know. And the thing is, it doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. Working at it and striving to get somewhere does not make insight arise. So a son was a laywoman who studied Zen with a master teacher, and she was unremitting in her devotion to her practice. is how it's described. And one day, during her morning sitting, she heard the crow of a rooster and her mind suddenly opened. She spoke a verse in response. The fields, the mountains, the flowers, and my body too are the bird. What is left that can be said to hear? So the teacher recognized her enlightenment. It's a nice Zen story, you can ponder it. But really the important thing to get is that insight happens on its own. We don't own it, and you cannot order it to arise. And there are so many stories like this. You know, one of my favorites was about Ananda, who was the chief disciple of the Buddha. So he was the one who went everywhere, and he memorized everything that the Buddha taught, which is a pretty amazing thing to think of. I don't think any of you are sitting out there memorizing what I'm teaching tonight. You know. And so he was so busy doing that for the Buddha that he never became an arhant. He never became enlightened. And then the Buddha died. So after the Buddha died, after a while, they had a gathering of the 400 fully enlightened arhats. And there was a bit of a problem because they couldn't invite Ananda, who knew all of these teachings. So poor old Ananda, you know, he finally had a little bit of time to himself now that the Buddha was gone, I guess. And he decided, okay, I'm really going to do it. And he sat and he sat and he sat and he sat. And he stayed up the night before the meeting, he stayed up all night. And it finally got to be the very wee hours of the morning and the meeting was going to start in a couple of hours. And he finally gave up. And he went off to where his bed was and he lay down and just as his head hit the pillow, the story goes, whatever needed to be seen was seen. So it's was in that moment of just giving up. Just gave up. And there are so many stories like that. The lamp is blown out and the insight arises. The frog jumps into the pond. The turkey cackles. You know, something happens. The rooster crows and there's a shifting in the mind and you see something. But you can't make that happen. You can't order up any of those things. There's even lots of stories in the retreat world of about people who something happens even with the sound of the dining room. There's lots of dining room waking up stories. So you can try that if you want. Go sit in the dining room a little bit and see if that helps. Hmm. Insight also comes gradually, really, really important to to say that. You know, you maybe see something very simple about impermanence or the nature of self or about suffering and you look at that and you realize, oh, you know, I'm seeing something about the Buddha's teaching, that's great. And maybe months or years even later you see something else and you go, oh, oh, that's a little more of that insight. I see it a little differently now. And then maybe another few months or years you see a little bit more. (coughs) So you realize that you've only seen the beginning and there's always more. I think there is always more, actually. Always more to be seen. So... And it actually says, you know, the Buddha talks about um, he's wandering in the forest with some of his monks and someone asks him about, you know, um, what about the mind of the Buddha and he picks up a handful of leaves and he says, you know, this is what I am teaching you. But this handful of leaves is not all the leaves in the forest. You know, just, just this little bit. So all we can do is practice unremittingly. I really like that, with great devotion. And you know, if you bring that to your practice every day to this very simple sitting, being with the breath, being with the body, being with all of the you know, things that come and go in the mind, but not catching on to any of them, just being fully present. And you know, maybe getting little glimpses here and there. Maybe at some point then the rooster will crow and something will open. So here's a a final reading. The ancients say that once upon a time a disciple asked of the elder, holy one, is there anything I can do to make myself enlightened? And the holy one answered, as little as you can do to make the sun rise in the morning. Then of what use? the surprised disciple asked, are the spiritual exercises that you prescribe to make sure, the elder said, that you are not asleep when the sun begins to rise. So here's a vow for our retreat. So I'm gonna read it slowly so you can take it in and perhaps take it for yourself. I vow to step away from my usual habits and defenses out of my usual schedule and out of my usual orientation to place. I vow to practice kindness and compassion for myself and others, even if I cannot feel it at all. And I vow to relax and also to practice faithfully and dutifully, understanding that the rooster of insight will crow when it wants to and not at my command. So let's sit and breathe together. Just stay right where you are, no need to adjust your posture. We'll just have a few breaths. What am I supposed to announce? Oh. There's an announcement which I'd forgotten. There is chanting that is going to happen at the nine o'clock sit. So it's a really lovely way to bring some softness and some devotion to the end of your day. Heather said to tell you she would not keep you here until 9.30. So you still get to go home and go to bed a little bit early. So... Have a good evening. Enjoy your walking. And then the sitting will happen at 9 o'clock. So thank you.